Welcome to the Hunting Science Podcast. My name is Mark Lindberg and I will be your host. Along with my guests, we will explore how science informs hunting by asking why questions. In addition, we will explore how science is used in management. Our focus will be somewhat on Alaska-specific topics, but we are open to other ideas and encourage you to suggest those ideas through our website. Well, today I'm pleased to have Randy Brown with me. He's a, a fisheries biologist for the Fish and Wildlife Service, but that hardly tells us much about your experiences. And um, and he's going to get into that in a minute and tell us about his past. And we've invited him here today to talk to us about two pretty different topics. First, we're going to start talking about his experiences and his knowledge of care of meat and fish in remote settings. And um, I think you'll learn a lot. I know I will from what he's going to tell us. And then we're going to take a break and um, have a second episode where we're going to talk about some of his expertise on fisheries in Alaska and some fascinating stories. So, And we're going to try to keep the these podcasts a little shorter. We've got some feedback that hours plus is a little too long, so we're probably going to try to keep these in about 30 minutes and start that way with Randy. And with that, I just want to let him introduce himself. Um, like some of our other guests, um, Randy does have some formal training for sure, but I think a lot of your knowledge comes from experience, and I think that's in some ways a lot more valuable um, in talking about the science behind some of this. So if you would, tell us your background. Yeah, so my background, I grew up in, uh, in Santa Fe, New Mexico, uh, southwest uh, United States, and, and uh, loved it down there. And uh, Santa Fe is up at around 7,000 feet elevation, and I used to go uh, walking uh, and hiking, camping in the backcountry in the, in the mountains there, and uh, just really enjoyed it. And I read all the books on, uh, you know, the, the, the mountain men the, from uh, back in the 1800s, and I wanted to do it. I figured I was born too late. And so when I graduated high school, I applied to the university up here in Fairbanks and uh, came to um, came to do the university. But I, what I really wanted to do was live out in the woods. And so I went one semester up here and uh, then I took the next semester off, uh, milked cows down in the Palmer area and then moved out into the woods up uh, in the Eagle area. What so, year is this? This is 1975 that I came up, oh my gosh. went to the university. And then uh, in 76, I, I moved out onto the Yukon. Uh, in the Eagle area, right near the border. And I knew nothing about living out in the woods or hunting or, or anything of that sort, uh, putting up fish. And so there were a number of people that I associated with in the Eagle area, some of the elders from the village and uh, a fellow named Mike Potts who had, uh, um, he, was, uh, he was married into the village with uh, Adeline um, Junaby was, uh, she came from, from Eagle. And so Mike actually uh, encouraged me to join him the first winter out on the North Fork of the 40 Mile River, a little to the south and west of Eagle. And that was really one of the pivotal experiences for me and got me going out in the woods. Uh, so hold it, you just drove there. I didn't have a car. How'd I, you get to Eagle? I hitchhiked. And you just showed up there. I showed up. You didn't have a plan. Well, I did have a plan. I was going to go downriver, um, and I picked it out 
from back in Santa Fe, I picked out the Tatondic River, which is on the north side of the Yukon, about 25 miles downstream of Eagle. And me and my uh, high school camping buddy, uh, Charles, we were going to go and move out in the woods there. And we went down there, and of course, there's people living along the river. And so there was a, a guy, Dick Cook, that lived up on the Tatondic River. And only about 10 miles of the Tatondic is in Alaska, and the headwaters in Canada. And he had a cabin five miles up and another cabin at the mouth. And he said, uh, there just isn't room. And we're, we're, you know, we're from Santa Fe, you know, and we're thinking, well, if we give you a mile, you know, that should be good enough. And he's going like, no, that is not good enough. And it isn't. So, so we, actually, that was the year that John McPhee was out there, right? And so, and so Charles and I, we, we went farther up the river. And uh, we just went exploring, realizing we're not going to be able to build a cabin and stay out there. And so when we came back down, Dick Cook was coming up the river with John McPhee. And, uh, and I remember um, Charles was, he's a big six foot six guy, and I'm right around six feet. And, and apparently Dick didn't reveal to him that he had seen us already. And so he's explaining to John about how you can tell, you know, because of the strides, how big these people are, you know, and that, that we're, because we were walking, we were lying in this canoe up the, up the uh, gravel bars. And, uh, and so John, um, he, j- he didn't realize that. And of course, here we are, and they're exact, we were exactly like what uh, Dick had told him. And he ended up claiming that Dick was like the grand swami being able to tell who, you know, what people what all these different things from tracks and things, which which you can, but anyway, it was it was pretty funny. But we went back to Eagle, not knowing what we were going to do, and that's when uh, I met Mike, and and he encouraged me to go out in the woods with him, and he had already had an established trap line over there. But I went out there, and he uh, helped um, show me how to hunt and butcher and take care of meat, and. Um, and Adeline sewed up a bunch of winter clothes for me, and so that was my first winter there, and it was uh, it was really a, a good thing. I I also went trapping with Mike, and finished up a cabin he had started. So there was a lot of learning going on. I call it my apprenticeship year, and um, and following that, I then went out down the Yukon and up the Candic River. The Candic River was is a big river uh, flowing from the northeast down to the Yukon, about halfway between Eagle and Circle. And uh, there was there was uh, a fellow living at the mouth of the Candic River, and nobody the rest of the way up. And so um, I went lining up there with another fellow who had been out on the forty mile. This guy uh, we called him Little John, and uh, and we went lined one canoe. And we searched all the forests on the way up, all the spruce groves looking for cabins. And we found uh, a number of old cabins, uh, only one of which was really usable because they had been built back uh, in, the, in the 1930s or so prior to World War II. Because pretty much that, that land was full back in those days. But World War II came around and, and most of the people left. And hmm. it was pretty much empty until the late 60s, early 70s. And you're like 1920. I'm. I was uh, 18 at that time. Oh my gosh. Yeah. And um, and so uh, in the Upper Candic River, all the cabins had caribou antlers all over the place and moose antlers all over the place. So we thought this is a good place. We'll, we should stay here. 
And so we built a couple of cabins. And in the first four years that I was out there, um, I didn't bring food from town. I just lived off of what there was out there, what I could find, you know, and I had a fish net. So we caught uh, fish up there. There wasn't really salmon runs up there. Uh, there were there were grayling though, and um, there were suckers, which are tremendous dog food. Uh, there were a few pike, not very many. Mostly it was it was grayling, and uh, and so those were always um, you know a good a good backup for uh, for food, almost anywhere you went. And then uh, there were a lot of beavers out there, and beavers are. Are, are fat. They're pretty much fat always, and that's a really uh, important quality of of, uh, of a meat. You know, if you if you eat straight meat and it doesn't have any fat, you starve. And if you eat straight meat and you're eating meat and fat, you end up uh, having a complete diet. Um, I had read uh, Stephenson's book on uh, his life with the Eskimo from back in I think it was 19. 19- 13 was when it was written, but it was from a few years prior to that. But essentially, the the Eskimo people that he uh, dealt with in northern Canada and uh, northern Alaska, they ate meat and fat in uh, proportions of about two-thirds meat and one-third fat. And that was, he, he figured that was a complete diet. Interesting. And uh, I haven't had beaver yet. I want to change that, but... Uh Beaver is, is great. And so, well, so one of the things that we learned, that I initially learned from Mike, and then we learned from experience, is that all of these animals uh, pretty much go through fat lean cycles. And um, so moose become very fat in the late fall. Um, we were uh, able to uh, take a big bull moose and render um, lard out of it or tallow out of it. Uh, to the tune of sometimes 12 to 15 gallons off of one big bull. What was the process for that? Well, you take all the, all the fat from the intestinal cavity and all the fat from the rump, you know, and on a, on a really fat bull, it can be four or five inches thick around the rump uh-huh. and down the sides. And you cut it up in pieces and, and essentially fry it in a big Dutch oven is what we used on a low heat. So it just sort of burbles and burbles and, and the oil comes out of it and you pour it through a screen into a plastic bucket and little by little and it uh i mean you can't pour it boiling hot into a plastic bucket but you we would decant it all in into those uh buckets and then it would keep for two years or so if you needed it wow. too. so yeah. just finish your uh, resume here if you will before we get into some yeah. of these details yeah, yeah, so yeah. you got four years <clears throat> i'm trying tr- following in the in the bush Four years that I was living by myself up there with uh, with uh, myself. I mean, Little John was there, but he he had his own cabin, and and so, um, and then I started looking for a woman. I came into Fairbanks and ended up the fourth year. It wasn't four years of looking; it was two years of looking. But I finally, <laughs> <laughs> I finally uh, found my my uh, my wife, and we ended up moving out there for another few years and uh, she was a teacher so we we would go to rural villages uh, for a stint of teaching and then we would go back but in the early 90s we came out uh, and moved out to Fairbanks we had two kids at that time Uh, uh, our older boy uh, was eight and our younger boy 
was four at the, when we moved into Fairbanks. And that's, and I was 33 at that point in time. And, uh, and I went to college. So they were born out in your cabin or? Well, just... they were actually born uh, in town because Karen didn't want to risk being out in the woods. Now, I told her that I knew anatomy well enough that I could give her a C-section if she needed it. And she <laughs> said, we are going to town. She didn't buy that. So. Randy, you, you instill a lot of confidence in me. I don't think I'd let you do that to me. Well, I don't think I could have done it either. But at the time, I was pretty confident. Okay. <laughs> that must have been hard to move into town, though. I mean, you, you had a life by now. There. I tell you what, it was one of the harder things I've ever done. And, uh, and then getting to Fairbanks, because I was, I was, I felt like I was king of the world out there. You know, I, mean, I could do anything, build any structure, build sleds, canoes, um, get meat, get fish, get, you know, cut wood. It, it was all there. And then I come to town and we have a, a I don't know what it was, $500 a month you know, rent. And I'm like, how do I do this? How do I hadn't worked for like almost 15 years, a, a real job. And, um, and so that it was, it was actually, it was a depressing time for a little while. I've heard that from several people like yourself. And, yeah. you know, I think it's funny too, you know, we talk about you coming to town and it's Fairbanks. You know, some people view this as moving to the <laughs> the, the, the no. bush, right? I mean, some no. By comparison, this yeah. is this is urban. But in any case, yeah, I finally decided. I I went around trying to get jobs at log working places and things that I had experience with, and um, but I wouldn't have been able to pay rent working all month in those places. So it was uh, much less childcare, and so uh, I I went to the university. I I enrolled in the university and started a, a biology program because now when we were living out in the woods we we ran into these different people that um that that were doing field work they were field geologists or field um botanists or you know people doing work with peregrine falcons or or fish surveys and other things and i thought that's where i could fit in that's where i could fit in and so i came to the university and studied biology and got a, a general bachelor's degree in biology and eventually got, um, and I worked with BLM the whole time, seasonally doing waterfowl surveys and, um, and fish weirs. And uh, then I got a job with Fish and Wildlife Service on a, on a seasonal basis. And with them, uh, did a master's degree with, uh, on the Yukon River on a project we were doing, looking at sheepfish migrations. So. That was uh, that was how I got into the profession, and that eventually turned into a. Uh, well, it didn't turn in. I had to apply for a permanent job there eventually. So when did you finish your master's? We were here about the same time. Ninety nine. Ninety nine. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. So um, we didn't overlap. I met you when I was here in the early nineties, but I. Yeah. It wasn't through school. It was through mutual friends. Yeah. Yeah. So, and then you got, when did you land a permanent job, Fish and Wildlife Service? In? Uh, well, it was 99. Oh, okay. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, so, and just to give you some idea how well Randy's done at that job, you're nominated for and will be awarded a 
an honorary doctor degree. Well, there is that. This, this year, right? <laughs> this, that, this, uh, this year. That's, that's impressive. True. So, yeah. yeah, like I said, that's what we want to talk about, uh, the fisheries work a little bit more in a second episode. Yeah. So now take a step back. So you're living off the land for yeah. 15 years that I added up correctly? About 15 years, yeah. Yeah, and much of that was pretty naive. Um, you, by your own admission, said, so you learned quickly here. So go back and walk us through care and storing of food. Yeah, um, so so when you don't have a freezer to come home to and to put meat away, you either eat it up or you find ways of extending its uh, survival, you know, so you, if you're in the summertime, you wouldn't want to shoot a big animal because you can't keep it. It's not going to going to last. And you don't want to shoot a big animal just to feed dogs because there's so many other things, you know, fish and, 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 and things to feed the dogs. So um, what we would do is hunt small game. We would hunt beavers because they were always there. They were always fat. They're fat through the summer. They're fat in the spring, in the fall, in the winter. They are kind of like the the ideal uh, small animal because you can take a beaver, even a big beaver that might be 50 or 60 pounds, and and you can eat um, for four or five days off a beaver if it's handled right. Um, and and it requires that it be open to the air, and that you have a minimum of little cuts where flesh is folded back on themselves because those start to rot. You know, rotting is the bacterial action. But if the surface, if it's a smooth surface that gets dry reasonably fast, then it will keep. The bacterial uh, action won't happen there. Flies won't blow it. It's it's like if if you have places that are really rough, like the backbone side of a side of ribs, those are really hard to keep. So those might be the you know, one of the first things you eat okay. off of a off of a small animal. This isn't just beavers. This is, you know, sheep or 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 caribou or uh, you know black bear. Mm-hmm. Any of these animals that you might take in the summer, the the better it is cut, the smoother it is cut, the fewer um, slashes with folds backs. You know, like you might get on the bottom of a ham, or um, you know, at the bottom of a neck the better it'll keep. And uh, part of the issue, so we used to we used to go up in the sheep mountains and and we would get a sheep and we wouldn't pack it anywhere. We didn't have anywhere to put it, right? It wasn't like we could hustle out and go and put it in a freezer somewhere. We didn't have a freezer. So we would sit up in the mountains and we would eat it. We would sit there for a week or 10 days and just enjoy the place and walk all over and explore, and we would have our food. We'd eat it. So, We'd eat it up. I mean, you're up in the mountains. How, are you hanging it or putting it in yeah. bags? So uh, No, we didn't put it in bags. We, I, I personally don't like the game bags. I think that their function is to keep a piece of meat from getting dirty, but it doesn't really allow it to air out, and, and it will... Uh, Meat won't last near as long in a game bag as it will just out in the air. Okay. So the the idea is to is to hang it on a pole or between two trees or a couple of tripods where it is hanging with just um, the surface of the meat exposed and again as smooth and as large pieces as possible. Whole back legs, whole front legs, 
uh, whole neck, uh, a whole pelvis bone. Those are all good things to to hang that will keep meat for uh, a long time. And and what you do is is as you are getting ready for a meal, you cut off, you trim off rough edges so that you have smooth edges everywhere and you let this thing get uh, dry to the touch. You keep a tarp over it so it doesn't get uh, sun on it and so it doesn't get rain on it. And hopefully in a place where a breeze goes by. So back when I was a kid in New Mexico, we used to travel around with these canvas bags of water. So we'd be driving, it'd be 80 or 90 degrees and just stifling, you know, and these would be hanging on a mirror on the outside of your car. So you're driving along and there's air going over it and the water is seeping out really slowly and it's evaporating as soon as it gets to the outside. Well, that evaporation makes it so that the water inside those bags stayed cold. Well, that same process is going on with a piece of hanging meat. So it might be 70 or 80 degrees outside in the day, you know, in, in, in mid-August or so. But that meat is also passing moisture out through the crust that starts to develop on it and evaporating off of that, which cools the meat. The meat is always colder than ambient temperature for that reason, which makes it keep longer. Yeah, so does that layer that forms on the outside of the meat, is that protective too from bacteria? Does that slow the process? Do it does. It does slow the bacterial process. It actually stops it. Okay. It can't get through there. The, the bacteria don't have a, um, an environment they can uh, survive in, or maybe they survive, but they don't grow. If you have uh, these folds where it's uh, moist, then they grow. Gotcha. And so the, the folds are what, are what is um, harmful to keeping it. And by the same token, you put it in a game bag, and then you, you know, the, 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 the evaporation is not the same through a game bag as it is off the surface of the meat. And, and I have taken game bags off of pieces of meat that have been hung with them or sat on a tarp uh, for days, and it's, uh, it's kind of foul. It's not any good. Yeah. So, so getting it out of the field, maybe have it in a game bag, but as soon as you get to a place where you can hang it without that, that's preferable probably for preservation. I would argue on a daily basis uh, you need it hanging. Anytime you stop for the night, hang it. Okay. And if you have it in a bag, take it out of the bag. So it sounds like even if you had access within days to a freezer, your preference would be to hang it for week? Not necessarily. Um, I think if you're, if you're taking game animals mm-hmm. and then transporting them out of the field, the likelihood is that you're going to have two or three days at least, I do, where I go, before you have a freezer available. But if you do want to hang it, and some people advocate it because it, it gets more tender uh, with some hanging, then you would want to do it without any game bag. You would want to do it not in a garage where the air is stifling, but out where it gets a breeze. Mm-hmm. It becomes hard in an urban area, but if you're out on a gravel bar with a boat, put up a couple of tripods and hang it there. But do it every night. You know, you can wrap it up, put it on the boat bottom, and transport it for the day. But as soon as you stop at night, 
I, I always hang them right back up. Okay. There's nothing worse than getting a kind of a nasty uh, piece of meat because it's been sitting in a tarp down in the damp bottom of a boat for a few days. Yeah, I definitely haven't done that. When I'm transporting them, multi-day transport, I, I never take them out of the bag, but I always try to get air around them yeah. at night. But it sounds like taking the next step of taking the bag off would probably be it improves better. It, it improves it, yeah. for sure. Yeah, I. So we used to take moose, you know, around the tenth of September. I used to hunt them between the tenth and the fifteenth of September. Yeah. Uh, specifically because later on they start uh, using up their fat uh, during the rut, and so you can get a, a moose on the between the twentieth and twenty fifth that's used up most of their fat, a big bull. And whereas you get them between the tenth and the fifteenth, and they're pretty much pristine. They are at their very best of the year. And uh, you get a maximum amount of, of fat for that. But then it doesn't freeze up until the end of the month. And so you've got somewhere around three, uh, three weeks back in those days anyway. Sometimes it would freeze before the end of September. But usually it would, you would have freezing weather at night and thawing weather in the day. And the meat wouldn't be all frozen until into October. But it keeps just fine if it's taken care of well. Okay. Yeah. So what's... Uh... What's the longest you've kept meat without freezing? About, uh, I don't know, three, four weeks perhaps. Wow, okay. Yeah, in the late fall. Yeah, that's interesting. And, and I hadn't thought about how that protective layer serves a couple purposes, but keeps the bacteria, keeps that meat cool. I, you may have heard on that uh, podcast we did with Alan Jubinville, we got stuck on a sheep hunt in 2004, really yeah. hot conditions, that bad fire year. And uh, we didn't make a good decision, but we decided to cook all the meat, which yeah. instantly heated the inside of it, yeah. right? Any coolness we had, we took away. And yeah. we didn't lose meat because we got out in six days, yeah. I think it was. But yeah. um, when we got back and researched a little bit more, it's like, oh, we should have just kept it in quarters as much as possible. That would have been a better move. Yeah, so a lot of people, when they sheep hunt, they, they bone it all out so they can carry more of it but taking care of a bone piece of meat is a lot more challenging than if it's in quarters and because you got those folds and places for bacteria to get a, a it, hold it becomes very very tough to okay to manage it so you you haven't done any brining or do you deal with the citric acid at all i've seen some people use that approach i haven't so, done any of that okay no. okay yeah bears don't keep as well as undulates okay. uh, you get a black bear in august and you pretty much got a week, maybe maybe ten days. Okay. Um, and then it it will be uh, dog food after that. Okay. It, it just uh, it just doesn't keep as well. I don't know what it is about it. It could be the marbled fat. I really don't know, but um, it won't keep like like undulates. What about uh, fish? Any different techniques, or is it pretty similar process? I I haven't done much of that. I've done canning but not field care as much. Uh, it, it is uh, very similar. The, the process and the logic behind it is very similar. Uh, we used to fish uh, king salmon on the Yukon in the, in the uh, summers, and it would be hot. It would be hot out. And we put tripods, a big rack, down on the beach so it would get the breeze, and we would have a tarp over it so it would be shady. And we would cut full fillets, of these uh, king salmon and lay them first skin side out so that would dry a little bit and then you roll it so it's flesh side out over poles in the breeze 
and um, it would it would keep for uh, several days in that form. And we would we would usually put some smoke onto it, cut some strips. The strips are easier when it's firmed up a little bit and has a little bit of crust to it. The yellow jackets would come and whack them pretty hard because they they love fish. They do. And um, but. Uh, but that those fillets would be uh, fine and without any sort of uh, rancid uh, flavor or smell to them for about five days at least. And we would jar them up uh, or cut them into strips for drying uh, prior to uh, that those times. But they lasted for quite a while. But you would think, you know, if, if it's, you know, getting 70 or 80 or 90 degrees during the day with blasting sun all day long, in, in July, um, that, that there wouldn't be a chance in hell of, of uh, keeping it that long, but it does. And it's the same process. It's cold when you cut into it, even when it's a warm day. Mm-hmm. So what would, what would get you through the winter then? You would have, it sounds like summer, you would kind of go meal to meal or animal to animal, mm-hmm. fish to fish, mm-hmm. and then fall, try to time your harvest of a moose such that you're carrying the majority of that into the winter. Yeah. And, that, uh, that's true. And in that upper Canada uh, country, uh, the wintering bands of porcupine herd caribou would come in, usually by late October or November. And they were not fat, um, but they were. But we had moose fat that was rendered. Or if we were lucky enough to get a bear right before hibernation, they were uh, always very fat, and that was really good, really good oil. That's more of an oil at room temperature. It's uh, it's it's softer than bacon oil. Huh. So, so would you trap through the winter too? I did. Okay. Yeah. And did you eat eat those animals? Um, not so much. Okay. Uh, Martin are are not all that great. <laughs> that was my main uh, um, my main trapping quarry. Uh, wolves. Uh, if it was a young wolf, I'd eat it. Okay. If it was if it was fresh, I mean if it was a, if it was my only fresh piece of meat, I would eat uh, a, a fat young wolf. And um, the older ones were not mm, all that great, and I didn't eat those. But the uh, the younger ones were good. Um, lynx were good. Oh, yeah. yeah. What you do with lynx? I'm just curious. I just fry them up. Okay. Yeah. I just okay. cut them in. And you trap, probably trap beaver through the winter is my guess. I, I didn't. Okay. I would trap them in uh, late winter in in uh, late March or early April. That was kind of a, that was an event in and of itself. Yeah. Uh, you may have heard my son decided he wanted to start trapping this year. So we, we have beaver sets out even as we speak. And uh, actually he wants to make some mitts and a hat mostly, but I'm, I'm hoping we get one too so I can try one because I've heard uh, rave reviews about eating them. So everything about a beaver is just great. Their hides are good. They're challenging to tan, but they they you know home tan. But uh, I used to do it. I had I had parkas out of uh, beaver for myself and for Karen, uh, and uh, hats, mittens. They're great. It's a tough fur. It's a tough leather. It's a it's a great meat. So you got to watch out for the casters. Yes. So, the casters are their are their scent glands, and you have to make sure that when that is excised out of the beaver, that it doesn't get on your knife or your hands or anything else that you touch that beaver with, or it will. 
It smells really great, but it does not taste good at all. <laughs> I will be careful with that. <laughs> I just skinned my first ermine the other oh, yeah. day, and wow, that's yeah. an interesting musk. Ooh, uh, yeah. That's, uh, yeah, and that you don't have to hit any glands. They just have that naturally. So, yeah, uh, yeah. Yeah, I hadn't, that's a unique smell. Yeah. So that's that's really fascinating story living like that. I mean, it, you, you've done what many have fantasized about doing and didn't have the guts to do it, myself included. But, um, you know, given that most of us don't do that, could you finish with just you have access to a freezer in five days, let's say. So what's the do's and don'ts for care meat in the field? What's the, the three things you should do and the three things you should never do? Well, I would say that you want to be sure to hang the meat every day, whenever you're not traveling. Um, you want to, I mean, it doesn't really matter if it gets some tundra on it or some leaves on it. It's just because that part is going to get cut off anyway. And so uh, I see that as kind of a, not, you don't want to lay it on a sandbar, but you know, without a tarp under it or, or in a bag of some sort. Yep. But you don't want to keep that, you don't want to constrict it from air moving across it. And so um, rainy weather is, is a challenge. If you get a moose or a caribou in rainy weather, then it isn't going to get that dried surface and it doesn't behave quite uh, as well. Um, and that can, that can lead to, um, I guess, more rapid, more rapid uh, degradation. Yeah. And use game bags only if there's a high risk of getting it dirty yeah um and then um well you so you're gonna you're gonna lash it onto your pack frame and and walk through the woods or across the tundra with it that might be a place to put it but you don't want to leave it there because it's going to restrict airflow and and it's gonna uh have a shorter shelf life yeah and, and you might even i i'm actually i have a theory that gamey is just um really more poor handling that results in the beginning of, of degradation and it sort of, you know, gets a little off. Not off enough that you don't eat it, but a little off. Because I, I think that these uh, animals are wonderful and they don't have an off taste. I mean, virtually none of them. Um, and so I, I would say you, want to, you definitely want to do the extra work, stop a little early to build tripods or, or find a good spruce camp where you can hang it in the open air at night and you put it into the boat to travel with it or four-wheeler or whatever it is you're traveling with um, and you can put some sort of either a tarp or your game bag or whatever for transport but but always bring it back out uh, for for the traveling try to keep it from getting wet once you have it as a dry crust um, don't let it get wet again if you can help it and boning out, you don't recommend that I don't, at all. I don't. I think boning is a mistake. It, so one thing I do sometimes is I'll take the back straps off of, a, off of a moose because you can then hook a cord into, you know, through the sinew on the back of it and hang it as a, as a single piece that way. And if you're careful with that cut side of it to keep it smooth, cut off those places where it might fold back on itself that works boned but like the rump or the or a back leg or a shoulder 
it's a disaster mm-hmm. trying to keep track of that meat. Yeah. No, that's interesting. And I, we've weighed bones after butchering animals, and it's it's surprising how little they actually weigh. Yeah. I mean, yeah. It, you're not saving much. And I've packed some meat that's boned out, and it's a, just a drag to deal with in yeah. a pack. Anyways, it doesn't have much structure to it. It's kind of <laughs> it's kind of alive. It's uh, yeah. 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 Well, all of those surfaces that, uh, you know, are just actively going with uh, bacteria. Right. It's happening. Right. No, that's great, Randy. I really appreciate that. That's a really fascinating story. I've heard bits and pieces of it, but never, never is a single, uh, single story. So that's, that's, that's admirable that you did that and you learned a lot. Yeah. I appreciate that. Yeah. You know, when I started back in college, all, all my all my buddies were going. There's not a chance that you're going to be able to compete with all those late teens, early twenties uh, uh, computer mind people in the university. But I did okay. <laughs> yeah, no, you did fine. Yeah. And with that, we'll just uh, wrap this one up and uh, come back and talk to Randy about how he did fine with his fisheries work. Like I said, he's going to be awarded an honorary doctorate here soon, and um, that's a pretty neat story. So let's. Um, Let's uh, wrap this one up and we'll uh, take a break and come back. Sounds good. You've been listening to the Hunting Science Podcast. To find show notes on this episode and to leave comments and continue the conversation, visit our website at community.uif.edu slash hunting science.